Well, good evening. It's good to be with you this evening, and it's so good to see all of you. We'll open your Bibles to Ezekiel in a moment we'll be reading, you know, from chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, is a king. He is the omnipotent king, and he is the king of all kings. Both Isaiah and Micah have foretold of the birth as well as the rule of the son who would reign on a throne of David. You could look at passages like Isaiah 9 or even Micah chapter 5. And then when you turn to the New Testament, we look there in Matthew, and according to Matthew's account, and we find that wise men from the east expected the coming of this king of the Jews. And as a result of that expectation, they looked for him, and they looked for him so they could worship him. Matthew chapter 2. But then when you turn the pages of the New Testament over to about the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John, you read about how how Jesus testified to Pilate himself that he was born to be king. But that his kingdom, his kingdom was not of this physical world. And so Jesus possesses a kingdom. And he is the sole monarch of that kingdom. It is He who has established it. It is He who now governs and protects it. Because King Jesus is like no other king, so is His kingdom. His kingdom is like no other that has ever been before or ever will be on earth. As we have studied before in other lessons, righteousness and justice are embedded in Christ's kingdom. And it's embedded in the kingdom because he is righteous, but also because of his subjects, because of his citizens who seek to imitate their king of righteousness. The strength and the might of this kingdom are not dependent upon any military strength of power as seen in the world. But rather, we see that it is rooted in the fact that He is the Son of God. And for that reason, He is the omnipotent King who rules over a kingdom that will never be destroyed. This evening, I want to focus on the idea of how the kingdom of Christ has no end. That it is an eternal kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom that is... Out of this world. So let us begin by just making note of some of the prophecies that we are aware of. For example, the prophets prophets of God foretold of the fact that there would be a kingdom coming one day. The Messiah would would bring that kingdom into existence. And it would be a kingdom that would endure forever. As we read already in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7, the divine prince of peace is going to establish this kingdom... And he's going to uphold this kingdom, and he's going to do so forever. And for that reason, it says that there will be no end to the increase of this ruler's government. 
But over in Ezekiel chapter 37, we also find how God's servant David would be prince and king forever. And this prince and king would establish an everlasting covenant of peace with the people of God. And God would establish his sanctuary in the midst of his people. So beginning there in the 24th verse, it reads, My servant David will be king. He'll be king over them, and they will have one shepherd. They will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I give to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nation will know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So not only does Isaiah foretell us about how there would be a prince of peace, who would establish a kingdom, he would sit on that you know, throne forever, but also Ezekiel describes to us of that same relationship. And you're familiar with the passage found in Daniel chapter 2 as well. As you read there in the 44th and the 45th verse, at the end of the explanation of this dream that God revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. You have Daniel explaining to us by the Holy Spirit this. He says, in the days of those kings, that fourth kingdom that, is, that would be the Roman Empire. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. A kingdom which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush it will put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. As much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it's crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its, its, its interpretation is trustworthy. So the prophets of old clearly foretold us, told them, and, has, and God has preserved their record in saying that there's going to be a kingdom, a kingdom that the Messiah, the anointed one of God, would establish and set up and rule over. And he says this is going to be a kingdom that is going to endure. It's going to last. It's going to last forever. And so we turn to the New Testament, to the good news of Jesus Christ. And what do we find? Jesus preaching. Well, we find Jesus preaching the coming of that kingdom. This one who said that he was born to be king said that it is near. In Mark's account, Mark chapter 1, as you read there in the 14 to 15 verses, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So not only have the prophets of God foretold us that 
this kingdom would come one day and it would last forever. But Jesus himself says, the kingdom of God is near. And so throughout his preaching, throughout his ministry, God, God the Son preached about the kingdom. Not only the nearness of the kingdom, but also the character of that kingdom. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 and through chapter 7, you know, what we find is we find the approved character of those who are in the kingdom. All of those who are in the kingdom of the Messiah. All of those who are part of this heavenly kingdom to come. And so he describes to us what their characteristic will be. This is the kind of people that compose my kingdom, Jesus says. And then you'd consider the parables. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, there's a number of parables there that talk about the kingdom. And it describes the various attributes or the characteristics of that kingdom. How? Well, by likening those attributes, those concepts, to other things that people could understand. But those parables are about the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom. The concept of the kingdom. And so when you look in the ninth chapter of Mark, as Jesus continues to teach and preach about the kingdom... We see that the coming of that kingdom and the establishment of that kingdom that had been prophesied by prophets of old and foretold even of Jesus Christ himself, he says, is going to be seen. It will be seen in the lifetime of those people who heard Jesus teach. And so Mark records here Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here. So in that audience that he spoke to them on that day, as recorded by Mark chapter 9, in that audience were individuals, he says, who will not taste death until they see. They would be witnesses, eyewitnesses of the coming of that kingdom as it comes with power. And so you think about what Jesus says then at the end of his life before he lays it down upon the cross for all humanity. And he says to Pilate, he says, I have a kingdom and I'm the king of that kingdom. I possess a kingdom. It is not of this world. If it was, my disciples would be fighting for me, but it's not of that nature. But I do have a kingdom. I was born for this. And so we, it is very important for us to not only understand the existence of that kingdom, but also the idea of the lasting nature of that kingdom. But before we go there, I want to very briefly touch on the idea that there are doctrines of men, there are teachings of men that distort the good news of this kingdom as recorded in the New Testament. For example... The A.D. 70 doctrine teaches that all Bible prophecy was consummated at the destruction of Jerusalem. That destruction that came by the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70. And so basically that teaching says all the prophets basically were looking to this one event on history. And everything's fulfilled at that time. And so, so biblical terms such as the second coming... 
or the resurrection or even the judgment day are all redefined and they're all redefined to fit this teaching, to fit this theory of men that basically says all of these things, all these events, the coming, the resurrection, and the judgment all were fulfilled when God judged Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And so with this theory, what they have to say about the kingdom of Christ was this, is that it was not fully set up. It, would, it did not come in glory and power until the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Well, that conflicts and contradicts what we find in the Scripture. Another false teaching is one that was mentioned uh, this morning in our studies as well. Premillennialism, which basically teaches that Jesus is going to come back. You know, they don't teach the same thing eighty seventy doctrine suggests, but they seek something different. And they, and they teach, well, God, the Lord is going to come back. So they believe there's a return of the Lord, but he's going to come back to earth to reign over his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Now recall, Jesus told Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not of the earth. And yet we see that it was established according to New Testament teaching and revelation and those that were deemed in Christ entered the kingdom. And yet premillennialism says, well, the kingdom's not established fully yet. It won't be established fully until he comes back to earth to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. Now they draw some of this teaching and they misinterpret and misapply the passage of Revelation 20. That's where they get the whole thousand year uh, time frame. But if you want to just glance over there very briefly in Revelation chapter 20, as you glance at that passage... You know, I just want to point out the fact that in this passage it says nothing, absolutely nothing, about Christ reigning on earth for a thousand years. It's not there. But it does talk about a thousand years. And it talks about a thousand years. It applies to what, what God is going to do to Satan. And how Satan is bound, Satan is restrained for this long period of time. And God is the one who has determined that. God is the one who's in control of that. And at the same time, you know, when you read there in Revelation 20, you know, and pick up verse 4, at the same time, you've got this group of martyred saints. So former martyred saints who are going to be reigning with Christ while Satan is restrained. But it says nothing about Christ's kingdom on earth and him sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. And so in verse 4, just kind of reading that very quickly, he said, he said I saw thrones and they, and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. 
Now, this lesson is not for us to, uh, to expound on the entire discussion of Revelation chapter 20. But the point is, judgment is rendered here. And the judgment that is rendered is rendered on behalf of the saints. And out of defeat, out of this defeat of the beheaded saints, of those who have been, who have been slain for Christ because they would not deny Christ, but they testify for Christ and they held to God's word, out of that feat emerged victory. And so the victory of these martyred souls is called the first resurrection. But nothing is said here about Christ reigning on earth, on a throne, in Jerusalem for a thousand years. But what does the Bible teach, though? What does it say about that kingdom that Jesus said was so near? That is going to, that is going to come with power in the lifetime of those who stood in his very presence and heard him say those words. Well, in Acts chapter 2, you've got the, the apostles being empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit as promised. And what do they do? Well, they preach Jesus. And they preach you know, God's plan of salvation you know, in Jesus Christ. And they preach, as they preach in Christ and preaching that salvation, they preach that he is a king. And so here, you know, beginning in, in chapter 2, verse 29, talks about you know, uh, the patriarch David, the father David, how he's, he's dead and he's buried and we still have his tomb. So he's not been raised. So we're not talking about David here. But we are talking about someone that David prophesied concerning. And so he says, and so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of the descendants on his throne. And they tell us, who is that one? That David prophesied concerning. He, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he, he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. And this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God. And received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So here on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Christ are preaching Jesus. They're preaching salvation and then preaching the reign of the promised king. He was raised from the dead to do what? To be exalted to the right hand of God and take the throne. To sit on the very throne that David prophesied that he would sit on. A throne that is in heaven and not on earth. His kingdom is not of this world. It's of a different realm. But also you turn a few pages over to Acts 8 and you have Philip the Evangelist you know, preaching the gospel, going even to the region of Samaria. And so as doors are being opened with the gospel in that region and he's preaching to audiences that are receptive. In verse 12 it says, when they believe Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, they're being baptized, men and women alike. What was, what, what was he preaching? He was preaching Jesus. And when he preached Jesus, he preached the kingdom. Why is that? Well, because Jesus is king. That's why. And as king, he's established a kingdom. And it is a kingdom that is going to endure forever. And so Jesus, when he ascended to the right hand of God, was not unable to establish his kingdom. He was not unable to set up the kingdom that he said he would set up. 
His throne is in heaven, and His kingdom is existence. Also, I think the the idea of the kingdom is no longer just near. During the ministry of Jesus, He's preaching the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. It's close. It's soon to be established. When was it established? Well, it was after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's when it was established. It's no longer near. Why is that? Because it was and it is here. And so Philip did what? He preached Jesus and he preached the kingdom. It wasn't incomplete. It wasn't soon to come. It had arrived. And for that reason, when you turn over to Paul's epistle to the Colossians, an epistle that was written prior to A.D. 70, before the destruction of Jerusalem, what does the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, say through Paul about saints and the kingdom? Beginning there in verse 12 of the first chapter of Colossians, he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why? For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Saints in Christ... The saints, the Christians in Colossae, were rescued out of a kingdom. It was a kingdom of darkness. It was a kingdom under the the prince of this world, the, the, the father of lies. They were rescued out of that domain. They were rescued out of that rule and that kingdom. And where were they put? Where were they transferred? Well, the saints in Colossae were transferred into, put into the kingdom of the beloved Son. It wasn't something that was going to happen. It was something that had happened. The kingdom was established. Why is that? Because Jesus conquered death. And Jesus became our advocate of propitiation. Jesus is king. He is Lord. That's why the kingdom is in existence. And so Christ Establish that kingdom. It's in existence. But I wanted to end on this kind of thought and just stress the stability and the security and the idea of you know, your trust in being part of the kingdom. The fact that Christians are citizens of an everlasting kingdom. You are a citizen of of an everlasting kingdom. And that is not the United States of America. It is not an everlasting kingdom. But Christ's kingdom is. It is a far greater kingdom. It is a kingdom that provides you everything that you need for eternity. In Matthew's account... We find that Christ gave His apostles the keys of the kingdom. At the time when Peter makes that confession in the 16th chapter, he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever has been bound in heaven, you will bind on earth, and whatever has been loosed in heaven, you will loose on earth. And that's repeated then again in chapter 18 and addressed to all the apostles. So, so So Christ gives His chosen Men who are going to be sent out to proclaim the gospel to the world, he gives them keys. Keys to what? Keys to the kingdom. 
And so he's granting them authority. The authority to do what? To bind and to loose. Authority to, to open and to close. Well, you couldn't do that if you didn't already have the kingdom. The kingdom is, is, is established. The kingdom is set up. And so he says, well, yeah, now you've got the keys. Go open the door for others to enter that kingdom. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, the Spirit of God exhorts us all, reminding us of the blessedness of being part of a kingdom that is unshakable. In the 12th chapter of Hebrews, beginning reading in verse 27, he says, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things. So those things which cannot be shaken may, be, may remain. Previously, you have the imagery of the shaking of the mount in the Old Testament when God came down to reveal the law to Israel through Moses. But he says, but yet once more, there's the removing of the things that can be shaken so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Well, what's that, God? He tells us. Verse 28, therefore, since we receive, or some versions say, since we are receiving, and that's the idea, yeah, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brethren in the Lord, Christians are receiving an unshakable kingdom. Earthly things can and will be removed. Our physical life is temporal. And all that we have in this physical life of ours is temporary. But the Spirit of God through Jesus Christ makes you and me a promise. And that is we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So render service with gratitude and reverence at all to the God who's granted you entrance into that kingdom. The Son's kingdom has no end. And so Peter, in his second epistle, here admonishes us, That through diligent faithfulness and through diligent fruitfulness, entrance into this eternal kingdom is made sure. It is made certain. You can solidify your entrance. You can make that entrance into the kingdom even stronger and stronger as you live your life faithfully to your king. And so there in the first chapter of 2 Peter, verse 10 and 11, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. He's just finished talking about what we call the Christian virtues, how we need to grow and we need to apply all these different attributes to our life. And so, so he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. You have been called. You have been chosen if you are in Christ. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God who has been adopted in the family of God, he says you have been called and you have been chosen. He says be all the more diligent to make certain about that. 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Why is that? Because His kingdom has no end. His kingdom will not be shaken. So in our lifetime, if our country is taken over, we're part of something so much greater. And no one else is going to take over the Lord's kingdom. It's His, and you're part of it. You're a citizen of an eternal kingdom, an unshakable kingdom, and one that you can make certain of your calling and choosing an entrance into that eternal kingdom. And so, when the heavens and the earth are burned up with fervent heat, as Peter talks about in his second epistle, on that great coming day of the Lord, when that happens, Christ's kingdom will still be intact. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very first verse, as Paul is about to admonish and exhort Timothy, the evangelist, to preach the word at all times, at all costs. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the ju- who, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing and His kingdom. When everything else that has passed away, when everything else has been removed, because it's earthly, it's temporal, the kingdom's not that. So when everything has vanished and gone away and passed away, and the new heavens, new earth comes, the kingdom will still be standing. And Jesus will still be king at the right hand of His Father in heaven, reigning, ruling, governing, caring, protecting, and guarding. And so it's for that reason, when you think about the idea of the King of Kings, who in the end is going to abolish all powers, and even the last enemy being death itself, it says then, it is then that the kingdom will be given to the Father. What a beautiful image that is to envision that moment. When all has been put under the rule of Christ, all opposition and enemies have been defeated and judged. We are told, beginning here in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom. It's his kingdom. He's king. And what's he going to do with it? He's going to hand it over. He's going to give the kingdom to God the Father when He's abolished all rule and all authority and all power for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. It is a gift that will last eternally because there is no end to it. There's no end to the kingdom of heaven. 
And so, you know, this is not consummated at, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is not going to, you know, occur, you know, at a thousand year period and Jesus comes back to, to be on earth again. No, when he comes back at his appearing and at the kingdom, all enemies will be conquered, all will be judged, and the kingdom, the kingdom, and all those who compose it will be given to the Father to be with Him forever in heaven. Are you a citizen of that kingdom? Are you part of the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are you obeying the King? We are servants of whom we obey. And the question that we each must ask and answer for ourselves is, who are you obeying? Is it God? Or is it Satan? Are you walking in light? Or are you practicing the deeds of the darkness? Which is it? There's no middle road. You must choose. But Jesus says, my kingdom will last forever. And he invites us and he calls us and he encourages us and he pleads with us to come. To come to him and make him the king of your life. To submit to his will and enter his kingdom that will never be shaken. It will never be destroyed. It will never come to an end but will be given into the hands of the Father, our God. Do you believe Jesus to be the Christ? If you do, if you believe Him to be the anointed one of God, God's Son, but you've not rendered obedience to His gospel, we want to encourage you to do that tonight. To call upon the name of the Lord in obedience to His commandments. To confess your faith with your mouth before others unashamedly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And with that faith, to repent of your sins. To turn from that past life and to bury that old man in the watery graves of baptism so that by the power of grace and faith, we can be raised to walk a new life in the kingdom. In the family of God. Subject to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. The only one who can truly save your soul. If we can help you any way spiritually, we invite you and encourage you. Please come forward while we stand and sing the psalm that's been selected.